0: It's December 11th, 2013. Only 14 more days till Christmas and welcome to another edition (laughs) of Bite Marks Cafe where we serve you the first
1: bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll
0: look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Ken Birkin to tell us about his
1: Windward Entrepreneurs Meetup. Finally, we will talk about the research vessel Falkor and the Schmidt Ocean Institute. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, the University of Hawaii is among a number of U.S. institutions supporting
0: the design and construction of a next-generation underwater exploration vessel called the Sea Orbiter. Described as a space station of the sea, the Sea Orbiter could see its first pieces built next spring. Uh, And the team has launched a crowdfunding campaign with the goal of raising 325,000 euros or nearly half a million dollars to get off the ground. The campaign is the latest milestone in a project that was considered over a decade ago by French
1: architect and ocean explorer Jacques Rogerie. The sea orbiter design, often compared to the fictional starship Enterprise, allows its crew to live and work 24 hours a day for a long period of time, drifting with the main oceanic currents across the vast expanse of largely unexplored territory. The crowdfunding campaign, which is being run on Kiss Kiss Bank Bank, is aimed at building. Building the eye of the Sea Orbiter, a large center structure that will house the 18 meter high above water lookout post and all the communication systems. It will also reach 50 meters beneath the surface for easy underwater observation. Building the communication systems first is key, as one of its guiding principles
0: is allowing the public to follow the live. uh, or actually follow live the crew's daily life, their exploration, their discoveries, and analysis of scientific results. In addition to UH, supporting institutions include NASA, NOAA, the Smithsonian Institution, and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Three days into the 50-day crowdfunding campaign, Sea Orbiter has already raised over $124,000 with two backers at the $20,000 level. Now, you know, I... uh, I've never heard of uh, Kiss Kiss Bank Bank, but uh, you know you can go to that site and see what the the, um, the crowdfunding effort is. And of course, you can also do a Google search on C sea Orbiter, and you'll get a lot of information about them. And I wanted to confirm with UH what their role is, and and actually UH is really looking closely at this, and mm. they are committed to helping to make
1: this a reality.
0: Now, what I was told was that. Um, Rolex is a major funder
1: of this project. Well, you know, the, the it's, it's worth Googling just for the renderings of mm-hmm, what they expect mm-hmm. this to look like. I mean, certainly, uh, when you get to the realities of needing things that will stay airtight in deep water and be at sea for months and months and months at a time, it probably won't be quite as sleek and shiny as a Starship Enterprise. But still, uh, it's pretty ambitious, and I would say that the Rolex involvement probably has to do with that as well.
0: And I, I you know kind of asked the question, if uh, there is the major funding that's already been somewhat, you know, committed to by Rolex. Why uh, this uh, crowdfunding? Uh, effort going on. I think a part of it is just getting the awareness for the you know sort of the general public of this project. Yeah, and
1: Kiss Kiss Bank Bank, which was new to me, is apparently the European mm-hmm, Kickstarter. It was right. it was uh, inspired by Kickstarter, but it's the largest platform there. But I, I also enjoyed kind of the rewards. And we said that there were two people who had donated at the twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollar level because you get to spend two nights on the Sea Orbiter. So even though there's a higher level, there's like a forty thousand or a fifty five thousand dollar level because it doesn't involve spending any time on the Sea Orbiter. No Backed it yet, so oh, I think they might want to reverse those two. But yeah, it'll be interesting to watch for sure. <laughs> Scientists are deploying the latest laser scanning technology to gather unprecedented details on current and historic lava flows on Kilauea and Mauna Loa on Hawaii Island. A research team from the University of Oregon announced last week that they were generating high resolution 3D models of lava flows at meter scale resolution. Often called LiDAR, the technology involves installing thousands of lasers on airplanes that scan the terrain below hundreds of thousands of times. The researchers were able to recreate the internal structure of lava flows and remove trees, clouds, and other obstructions from the compiled images.
0: The, t- the technique gathers uh, far greater detail than the more conventional used satellite imagery and is certainly safer than conducting manual surveys on foot, particularly when fresh lava flows can be as hot as 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit And even cooled can be brittle and difficult to travel across. The latest survey also expanded beyond the well-studied main flows of Mauna Loa and Kilauea to include side tributaries or branches covering far more territory. The new data will be Uh, of particular interest to
1: emergency and hazard management groups in predicting the speed and direction of future flows. Research lead Kathy Cashman told Live Science, it is possible to start analyzing flows in a way that we have never been able to do before. So this is opening up new ways of studying old flows and new opportunities for monitoring active flows. And the team notes that while the technique is expensive, the data can be used in several fields of study. The trees that were removed from scans for geologists, for example, could be of interest to forest biologists. So this is uh, interesting
0: because when you look at the satellite imagery, it basically looks kind of like a two-dimensional image. Whereas uh, with the detail that comes as a result of the LIDAR, you can actually see the dips and valleys and crags and k- crannies that would, cre- would be created as a result of the uh, lava flow.
1: Yeah, and we've talked before about sort of the deployment of LIDAR for various re- uh, reasons. Of course, it's been used in Italy at Mount Etna um, probably five or six years ago already. Um, the University of Northern Colorado earlier this year, we covered the story where they were using it to monitor the lava lake in Kilauea Crater. Mm-hmm. And apparently that was for a Weather Channel television special. So certainly not. Not a brand new technology for this purpose but certainly they're talking about you know improving upon just satellite imagery being able to remove clouds and to do a 3d model what i thought was particularly interesting was the focus on these these tributaries the the branches of it you know you might follow where the main flow goes but a little finger of lava is just as dangerous Mm -hmm, to uh, mm -hmm. life and limb as the main flow Mm -hmm. for sure well, next up, although based in
0: Balmy, Hawaii, researchers at the U.H. School of Ocean and Earth Sciences and Technology yesterday announced the findings of a recent expedition to the freezing subpolar fjords of Antarctica. And what they found on the seafloor in this first-time study beneath the icy Antarctic water and glaciers was an unexpected abundance of diversity, uh, diverse sea life. That stands in stark contrast to the impoverished seafloor communities that have
1: been documented in the far more thoroughly studied regions of the Arctic. They collected photographs of crustaceans, anemones, bristleworms, sea spiders, and sea cucumbers, all living beneath waters that were rich in jellyfish and krill. Even so, the researchers also concluded that the West Antarctic Peninsula is undergoing very rapid climate warming and may not be hospitable for much longer. The research team suggested that the difference in abundance and diversity in sea life between Arctic and Antarctic regions could mean that the subpolar Antarctic is just in an earlier stage of climate warming than the Arctic, which definitely shows Much greater levels of glacial melting and glacial sedimentation below. Because there is comparatively
0: little melting observed in the Antarctic, glaciers and icebergs tend to drift further out to sea before dropping much sediment. The seafloor is unlikely to be buried by inorganic materials, leaving organic debris to fall and feed the life below. Craig Smith, an oceanography prof- professor over at SOAS, said in a statement, our study area along the Antarctic Peninsula is warming as fast as anywhere in the world, and the amazing ecosystems there are changing very quickly. We urgently need to develop a better understanding of the structure, function, and climate sensitivity of these fascinating and imperiled seafloor communities. Now, it, it, it's interesting that, uh, I guess, you know, if you think about the Antarctic being uh, maybe less... Uh, impacted by some of the global warming, and that the you know the icebergs sort of float further out before they actually drop their uh, sort of sediment, inorganic sediment to the floor, uh, that would still allow for the sea life to thrive at the at the bottom of the uh, ocean there. So that's kind of interesting, and I and. You know, typically they would take uh, uh, an ROV out with cameras and and really kind of survey the, the the ocean floor. And it's surprising that this is the first time they've actually done that,
1: or at least in this area. And actually, I, what to me what was striking is, sure, one might be further behind in the process than the other, but they were talking about from uh, three to thirty eight fold greater abundance of of uh, sea life on the seafloor in the Antarctic so Mm -hmm. I mean that's a significant difference even though you might think a little further behind Um, they did talk about how there would be enhanced food inputs probably involved everything from photoplankton and macro algal debris even humpback whales who kind of leave deposits Mm -hmm. that can Mm -hmm. feed sea life below so definitely interesting study Um, it's going to be published in PLOS 1 and it was funded by the National Science Foundation
0: and you know they did uh, send a link to a blog that they were
1: maintaining and there are some great photos there, so I'll uh, put that link up on our show notes. Fantastic. STEM Incorporated, an advanced energy storage system company, this week announced that it closed a $15 million Series B financing round. STEM, which is based in California, was chosen to participate in the Hawaii Energy Accelerator Program last month, and that separately made the firm eligible for up to a million dollars in funding. Founded in 2009, the company's data analytics and intelligent energy storage system is designed to help businesses reduce their electricity costs without changing day-to-day operations. The STEM systems include an autonomous, real Time Decision Engine that alternates between battery and grid power to optimize energy costs. STEM's customers come from a range of industries, including manufacturing,
0: retail services, and hospitality. The Series B funds will enable expansion to new commercial and industrial sectors and geographies primed to benefit from the cost savings associated with advanced energy storage systems. Colleen Calhoun, Senior Executive Director of GE Ventures Energy, said in a statement, STEM is a company to keep an eye on as as their combination of sophisticated predictive analytics and machine learning applied to energy storage will provide cost savings for industrial customers and businesses.
1: The funds that STEM will receive through the Hawaii Energy Accelerator will be used to support the deployment of up to a megawatt of STEM storage systems here in the Hawaiian Islands. STEM was one of 15 companies announced last month as members of the 2014 cohort for the $30 million Navy program, and we'll speak to some of them next week here on this show. Don Lippert, Energy Accelerator co-founder, said in a statement, STEM's deployment of energy storage will benefit Hawaii's energy system. With over 400 megawatts of wind and solar installed on island grids, we are looking for solutions like energy storage and smart analytics that can help integrate variable, renewable energy.
0: You know, there was a story that uh, popped up on GigaOM, I think it was uh, last month, and it kind of caught my attention because it talked about STEM uh, having been um, chosen, I guess, as a uh, vendor for a couple of Hawaii projects. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the connection. But I was curious at that time whether or not they were involved with the uh, Energy Accelerator, and it turns out they are.
1: Well, and it's an interesting. I mean, when you hear the description and with all of the the the— the uh, marketing speak, you're mm-hmm. like, what does the system do? I mean, basically, they say that when you pay your energy bill, there's the average rate that you pay, and then there's what you pay for high demand periods. Mm-hmm. And they're saying that when you're talking about pulling power during those high demand periods, that could account for 50% of the bill. So you might have the standard rate, but if you're also pulling power during prime time, for example, you're going to pay more for it. So you've got the system, nothing changes, you're not going to necessarily have to change all your light bulbs or anything, but by storing energy and being able to balance it against those high... Uh, Mm -hmm. those increased premium hours, Mm -hmm. you still can save like 20%. So it's an interesting idea. I mean, that's attractive to a business. I can save money, but I don't have to actually change how we do business. I think it would be good to encourage that, but that's their approach.
0: You know, the other thing that I was quite impressed about is the fact that the the, uh, Energy Accelerator has announced their 2014 cohort, Mm -hmm. and it's a pretty good uh, 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 cross-section of companies across the nation that are participating in, in this uh, uh, cohort. Right. And so it's, it's pretty
1: impressive. Plus several from here in Hawaii yeah, as well.
0: Yeah. Anyway, here's a couple of quick items on the tech calendar we wanted to share with you. This week is Computer Science Week, a national nonprofit campaign that hopes to give every student in every school the opportunity to learn computer science. The initiative focuses uh, on one hour of code events, organized by teachers and schools across the country. In Hawaii, the program will culminate on Friday at its Hour of Code event uh, with the presentation of a $10,000 donation from Code.org to Hale Kula Elementary School over at Schofield Barracks.
1: And on Saturday, Aloha.rb is hosting Honolulu's Global Day of Code Retreat event. It's a worldwide event on December 14th where thousands of computer programmers get together to focus on honing their skills for that day. This year's Code Retreat here in Hawaii will be held at RND in Kaka'ako. And for more information, you can go to coderetreat.org. And now joining us here in the studio is
0: serial entrepreneur Ken Birkin to tell us about the Windward Entrepreneurs Meetup. Welcome to the show, Ken.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Now, Ken, you know, we've known you for a while about uh, you know, doing all these uh, sort of entrepreneurial activities and uh, when I saw the sort of entrepreneur meetup in on the Windward side, I thought, "Oh, this is pretty cool." I mean, you got something localized on the Windward side. You've been doing this what for about a year?
2: Yeah, we started about a year ago. It started because, uh, well, I got tired of having to drive over the poly <laughs> to go to all these events, such as the two events right, that you just right, mentioned. Right. Uh, those of us um, way out on the uh, Eighth Island.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I, I often you know, joke around by telling people that you know whenever I go to the windward side, it's like going to a neighbor island. It
2: does feel that way sometimes. Of course, I made up for it by having to drive across the island to come here today to be on public radio. Yeah, well, it, uh, I mean, worthwhile. So
1: tell me about that. I mean, basically, uh, technology says you should be able to work from everywhere. The technology has tools that you can collaborate in any way and have a conversation and get things done without having to be in the same place. Why create a, a faction? Why say the windward side and we're going to
2: be a separate group? Because uh, there's still something about meeting people in person. Mm-hmm. And there is uh, something about having a drink in your hand, whether it's a beer or Mai Tai or a soft drink, and be able to look someone in the eye and chat. Um, and, of course, it makes a lot more sense to do that locally. And, of course, there's all kinds of entrepreneurs. We think tech are entrepreneurs, and certainly what I am, but we've had everyone from massage therapists to accountants hmm. um, to uh, you name it. So we're really open to, to all kinds of people um, who want to talk about what it's like to run a business in Hawaii? So no.
0: at the at the meetup, what do, what do you guys tend to really focus in on? I mean, is it sort of a uh,
2: a group hug, or <laughs> is it an p- opportunity to share, let's say, war stories? Uh, more of the war stories than the group hug. It's very <laughs> informal, uh, so we encourage people just show up um, and. Um, then we we talk about whatever's of interest. We do make a point of going around and introducing Mm -hmm, ourselves. mm -hmm. And sometimes we do have a a presenter, although that's not real common. Uh, And mostly we just have a chance to to talk. So sometimes everyone listens and sometimes we we talk just to the person next to you. So very, very informal. And I wouldn't say there's even a a standard discussion that that goes on because we get – Different people at, a, at every meeting. Well,
1: mm-hmm. Ken, I should ask you, I mean, so you've had these events for some time. Has there a, has a theme developed? Is there something that, uh, because you, of course, are perfectly willing to cross the Ko'olaos and make that long journey to meet with us townies, but is there something about uh, the community there that shows us maybe a different focus or a different uh, emphasis that, uh, that really attracts you to continuing this group on the windward side?
2: It would be great if I could say yes, but the truth is no. I think that entrepreneurs are the same everywhere, mm. the same topics, the same interests. I don't think that anything has shown up that is particular to Windward except for a complaint about having to drive over the park <laughs> every time you want to go do anything. And it's been great over the, the years that, that I've been in Hawaii. I've been here nine years now. Uh, I've seen so much more entrepreneurial activity and so many more activities and, and everything from blue startups to um, – um, the crow working spaces and and so on, um, so there's a lot of stuff happening, and we're just one more thing on the calendar. If
0: if there's anything that you would like to sort of see come out of uh, the meetups, I mean, what would you consider? Uh, let's say the the value of having it, or the you know sort
2: of the um, the the give back of what the meetup really accomplishes. If we had someone who came to one of these meetups and said, I'm thinking about starting a company, and a year later they've started the company, that would be a huge thrill. Mm-hmm. I think that would be, uh, make us all feel good about things. And One of the great things here in Hawaii is everyone is so supportive. We never see people um, um, competing about their startups. It's not a zero-sum game. We're all in this. The more people who um, participate, the the more there is for everyone else.
1: So uh, this is a meetup happens monthly, but you've got one coming right up. Uh, where and when will that take place? Our
2: next one is tomorrow night at five thirty at Pinkies in Kailua. And of mm-hmm. course, if you are on Windward, you know where Pinkies <laughs> is. That's uh, you guys, gotta look it up. Gotta yeah. go- gotta yeah. Google it. And uh, Pinkies has been great for us. It uh-huh. gives us a nice place to meet and um, poo poo's and drinks. Um, and so, um, where can we really someone really go to find it? out more information? On uh, so go to meetup.com uh-huh. and just search for. Um, uh, WinWord Entrepreneur Meetup, or if you can't spell entrepreneur like I can't, <laughs> then search for our tagline, which is Meet, Chat, and Learn. Sounds good, and we'll definitely put that up on our show notes as well. Thanks, Ken, for joining us. Thank you. I'm pleasure to be here. And that's what's been
0: happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Jimbo Duncan and Brian
1: Glazer to tell us about What goes on on the ship Falkor? What brings the Falkor to Hawaii's waters? What projects and research lie ahead? We'd, of course, love your questions as part of that conversation, so please don't hesitate to give us a call here live on the air at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689.
0: And, of course, if you're kind of a shy caller, you can always tweet us your questions. You can find us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
3: What's the better way to solve social problems, government or charity? Contrast that with government. No one would suggest that government can turn on a dime. I'm Kai Rizdal. A lot to give. Our philanthropy series continues next time on Marketplace. We'll have the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's from APM. This evening at 6, following
4: Bite Marks Cafe...
1: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Porter Story.
0: And I'm Gail Story, author of I Promise Not to Suffer. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about our hike of the Pacific Crest Trail.
4: Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to
0: Bike Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Jimbo Duncan and Brian Glazer. Jimbo is a marine technical uh, resource
1: over on the research vessel Falkor. Brian, meanwhile, is an associate professor at the University of Hawaii's Department of Oceanography and leads an expedition to, and will be leading an expedition, to a seamount off the Big Island. And how is the university leveraging the resources on the
0: Falkor? We'd love to hear your Questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine 941 3689 from the neighbor islands. Jimbo and Brian, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe.
3: Well,
4: nice to be here.
3: Wonderful to be here today.
0: Great. So I you know, have been uh, sort of watching the Falcor w- uh, when it was docked over at the uh, uh, um, Aloha Tower Marketplace, uh, and it was kind of an impressive uh, ship just to kind of walk by. Uh, and I was you know, kind of curious, of course, Eric Schmidt, who is the uh, chairman over at uh, Google, is a primary financier of this research vessel. Um, Jimbo, tell us a little bit about the history of where sort of
4: the Falkor really started. So it, uh, it all started probably back in about 2008, 2009. They uh, originally had two ships. Uh, They got a lone... One ship was called the Lone Ranger, and Hmm. she was a converted uh, ocean tug, and she'd originally been converted to an expedition yacht. She'd been all the way down to Antarctica and back, Uh, and then she was gifted to the Schmidt Ocean Institute, and uh, an SOI used her for two or three years to do uh, various bits of uh, ocean research, I think mostly in the Atlantic, um, but I wasn't on there for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other ship they bought was an ex-German Coast Guard vessel. Uh, she was originally called Sea Falcon, which means Sea Falcon in German, and uh, she was built in 1981, and uh, then they took her and put her in dry dock for three years and did a major conversion, ripping all the all stuff up basically after the bridge, I think, off, and uh, um, putting... Uh, a new generator on board um, to make better clean power, and uh, lots and lots of sonars, um, new computers. Um, they stripped all the cabins out, made, made nice cabins for us. And, uh, yeah, yeah, lot, it's a, it's, a, it's a
0: beautiful ship. I mean, um, evidently, Eric Schmidt, I mean, one of his visions is to really put some of his
4: profits into
0: uh, doing ocean research.
4: Philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Projects, yeah, and this is just one of them. Um, uh, Brian can probably talk better than I can about MSTF, which is uh, one of the other foundations. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, what part of the vision as well is 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 to give scientists access to a world class research vessel, and then make all the data that we get from those cruises uh, freely available online, so other mm-hmm. people can benefit from it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Um uh, I think it's fantastic because of, uh, Google is one of those companies that certainly is exploring many things, self-driving cars and and and, and robotics and, and such like that. So uh, putting some of those resources to uh, ocean research is certainly good. Now, Brian, uh, how did the University of Foy make contact? How did uh, this partnership um, develop? And. Why did we uh, get the Falkor visiting us here in the islands?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for having me on the show today. I'm happy to happy to be here and tell a little bit about my involvement with uh, with Schmidt Ocean Institute. So about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, um, the uh, science director for Schmidt Ocean Institute, Victor Zygoff, came and did kind of what I understand to be a world tour, letting all of the research community know that Eric Schmidt and Wendy Schmidt have decided to get interested in marine research uh, from, as, from, from the standpoint of more than just a hobby and enable researchers with this, uh, with this resource as, as a vessel and opportunities to visit the deep ocean, and so Victor uh, gave a presentation about what they wanted to do, what the vision was, and shortly thereafter, the Schmidt Ocean Institute had an open call for proposals from the research community, and I think they received over 100 uh, worldwide, and uh, from the pre-proposal stage to then a full proposal stage, everything went through a competitive review, real similar to what we go through for the federal funding processes and using uh, United States research vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, a few of us at, at the University of Hawaii have funded uh, uh, research expeditions coming up in 2014 with the Schmidt resources.
0: Now, you know,
4: from what I, uh, from what I gather, Google is not involved with uh, the ship at all, right? So That's correct, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally funded by uh, Eric and Wendy, mm-hmm. um, so so it it's 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 nothing to do with google i mean go- the google street view people have been on board they've done a street view tour of the ship um and we've put some of our data uh, up on google earth so if you if you go to an area of the um gulf of mexico called the campeche Escarpment, uh you'll see one of our biggest multi beam surveys yet and you 'll see that we, we do get credit for the data I mean that 's one of the challenges you know we we log terabytes and terabytes of data that can be video from rovs it can be multi beam mapping data uh, showing what the the seabed looks like. Uh, it can be data about the water column, the temperature salinity as you go all the way down to around five thousand meters. all sorts of different data and the and the challenge is how do you get it all out there? How do you mm-hmm. make it publicly available? And one of my colleagues, Nathan, uh, Nathan Cunningham, is in the middle of trying to work on that right now. So it's, 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 a, it's a challenge. We've managed to do some of it, but uh, certainly not all the data we've logged
1: is, is out there yet. We're talking to Jimbo Duncan aboard the research vessel Falkor from the Smith Ocean Institute and Brian Glazer, an oceanographer at the University of Hawaii, about some of the research being done with this vessel uh, while it is in Hawaiian waters. If you are curious about the ocean, if you think you can imagine a project that this vessel might be perfect for. You can give us a call and ask the experts at 941 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. So uh, Jimbo, you're affiliated with the ship itself and you're deployed where the ship is deployed and you get to work with various research projects that are um, allowed time to use as of its research. Can you tell me a little bit how you uh, landed that gig? I mean, um,
4: how I got the job? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so one of my other colleagues, Leighton, uh, Leighton Raleigh, um, we both worked together at uh, the Oceanography Centre in Southampton in the UK, and uh, and he moved across to SI, SOI first of all, and I got a an email from him uh, back in, I think, Christmas, I think Christmas 2011, he said, you could do this as well. And so I thought, thought about it for a while. It's a big job. I'd, I'd been working for my previous employers for about 20 years, so it was a, it was a seriously big decision to make. Do I really want to leave and, and go somewhere which I'm not really sure of? Mm. And so um and so yeah I, I made I made the jump. I went I went to see them in Germany where the ship had just been uh, had just come out of dry dock and had its renaming ceremony. And um and they seemed very nice people. The ship was really nice and um and so uh, the, the only daunting bit was the interview. Um they said they said okay, we'll we'll have some lunch first and then you can have the interview. And so didn't eat much. Right. <laughs> and went into this huge room and everyone came around. I thought, good grief, how many people are coming in here? So uh, that, that, that was a bit daunting, but it was okay. And, nice it was, people.
1: and was the ocean part of your background or part of your passion that drives you? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I've, I've been going to
4: sea uh, for 22 years now, 23 years, in fact, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I really, really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful ship. Like being on Crystal Cruises. No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, you know, when
4: you did the
0: proposal to decide, uh, you know, let's say propose what kinds of experiments and what kind of projects you wanted to leverage the the FALCOR as a resource, uh, what was it that you took interest in in terms of the capability of the FALCOR? And was that capability, uh, let's say, uh, not available in any of our other research ships?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So the nice thing about the Falkor is we knew it was going to be one of the most technologically advanced ships available to researchers in a long time. The U.S. just doesn't have the funds to outfit research vessels the way that uh, Eric and Wendy Schmidt have outfitted the Falkor. Mm-hmm. So that's one. We knew it was going to be top-notch. Uh, number two is that uh, it was a time when um, federal, federal resources, funding resources, were uh, tailing off a little bit. And so uh, the Schmitz have come in at the right place at the right time to really enable ocean science research to do this nice blend between uh, research and exploration. And something that the National Science Foundation has sometimes difficulty funding uh, is exploration without a hypothesis, without really um, going in and driving science and just looking around a little bit. NOAA does a little bit of this with the Office of Exploration, and uh, it, it's a difficult thing to fund. And so that the Schmitz have come in with FALCOR, having a world-class research festival available to dedicate some portion and really balance, say, a 30-day research cruise between – known results that you're going to go out and get by testing scientific hypotheses with a little bit of exploration and saying, we don't know what's down there, mm-hmm. uh, is just a wonderful opportunity. That's personally what drove me to write the proposal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, Jimbo, I know you have uh, a bunch of things that you can tell us how the FALCOR really stands up against any comparison to other research vessels. I want you to share that with all of our listeners.
4: Well, you know, to, to start off with, it, it's, it's probably the best sonar ship I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. And I've been on... Uh well it started off uh with multi beam sonar on the Royal research of Charles Darwin that had an old EM twelve system on. It was, you know, state of the art when it came on there. And uh that has eighty one beams in the swath that it that it gets from the from the seabed. I think our current systems on Falcor I'm probably gonna get this wrong now. I think they're four hundred beams each on the EM seven ten and EM three oh two multi beams. And um it's it's really really high resolution data in comparison to the earlier ships and and the other I mean I went on another ship uh, called the uh, the James Cook and and that has real problems with bubbles affecting the sonar mm-hmm. uh, caused by its bulbous bow. Now Falkor's got a, pul- a bulbous bow as well, but they've positioned the um, the gondola which houses all the sonars in the correct space so all the bubbles uh, come down behind. The gondola, mm-hmm. and so they don 't affect the sonar, and the sonar data is excellent and we have an apart from the um, the multi beams, we have a number of other different sonars used for for looking at uh, at fish in the mid water and
1: uh and looking at ocean currents as well. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to hear more about some of these tools and certainly what uh, some of the tools specifically that Brian's going to be taking advantage of. We're talking to Jimbo Duncan from the Research Vessel Falkor at the Schmidt Ocean Institute and uh, Brian Glazer from uh, the University of Hawaii's Department of Oceanography about the research vessel here in Hawaii. If you've got a question uh, we'd love to pose it to the experts here at 941 or from the neighbor islands 877-941-3689 and as we mentioned we're also on Twitter, and we got a question via Twitter from Forrest in Honolulu, who wants to know, are there radiation sensors aboard this ship noticing that there's a lot of coverage on radiation in the Pacific as a result of Fukushima?
4: Now, uh. that depends on the type of radiation you're talking about. Okay. okay, so radioactive radiation, no. We don't have any sensors for that. Uh, we have a couple of sensors called PAR sensors, and that PAR stands for photosynthetically active radiation. And this is the spectrum of light that plants use for photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. And so we have a couple of those, uh, one of each side of the main mast. Um, so, sorry, no radioactive sensors, but...
0: There's a... There's a um, you can tell us a little bit about some of the acoustic sensors that you also had. That was kind of an interesting uh, piece of equipment that I had gotten to see when I uh, did a quick tour.
4: Oh, the sound velocity probe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. So um, the, the multi-beams need to know... The speed of sound in water Mm -hmm. and uh, so they have a sensor that's in the bow of the ship that gives you the 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 speed of sound in water uh, constantly at the surface and it does this by firing a little sound beam uh, from a transducer and it bounces off a plate uh, which is a known distance away and then back to the transducer and so that's how that works and we've got a, a slightly bigger one that you also saw which goes down on a wire and we can get a profile of sound velocity versus depth, which is used to get the, the different water densities, so that they can work out that, that the sonars can work out on the on the ray bending, how the, to work out the exact position that the individual beams are going to hit the seabed at.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the things that we do cover periodically on our show, of course, is sonar research or military activity and its effect on sea life. Is that the sort of thing that falls within the purview of your vessel?
4: Uh, yeah, unfortunately it does. Um, with One of the big things that happened a few years ago was the stranding of whales on Madagascar. And a report came out and said, oh, it's possibly due to this this, this vessel that was running a, a 12 kilohertz multi-beam system somewhere away. I think it was about 100 miles away. Oh, it may, it might have changed their, their behavior and it might have caused them. There's a lot of mites in the reports. And so everyone's saying, well, if it can't be that, what, what else can it be? And th- there are no real answers and so people are, cons- are are getting concerned about low frequency multi beams now the the lowest frequency that the Falkor's multi beams use is 30 kilohertz and uh, i believe the new guidelines are specific for, specifically for multi beams using frequencies below 30 kilohertz so hopefully it won't affect us but um you know we do have to be aware of um of cetaceans in the ocean and how they can be affected by sonar but my my personal feeling, um, and it is just my feeling, is that it isn't a big worry. I have I have been on a ship with a ten kilohertz sonar that's much lower, um, from a fish at the side, um, with the transducers mounted and a fish at the side of the ship, and I've seen dolphins swimming around it, mm-hmm. and. If they were being harmed by a uh, 12 kilohertz deep water single beam sonar, they would they would go away. I would have, think, mm-hmm. I would have thought. They didn't um, look like they had headaches. No, absolutely not. They um, seemed to be enjoying it. They seemed to be curious about what it was.
1: Brian, um, so you knew that this was a cutting-edge ship with the newest technology that you could use for your research, but I was curious about any specific tools that, when you opened up that glossy brochure of the of the latest model of ocean research, I mean, what was uh, the tool that you look
3: forward most to uh, taking advantage of? Sure. Actually, the tool that we'll be using the most isn't an SOI asset, but they were willing to pony up and provide it to researchers. and huh. So we'll be using the hybrid remote-operated vehicle vehicle... HROV, Nereus, which is actually a Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute uh, asset. And so what we want to do is actually visit the seafloor. And, you know, I've mentioned once or twice before that, you know, when we think about the deep ocean, it's entirely unexplored. You know, Earth itself is a misnomer. We should be calling ourselves planet ocean. We're 70 percent water on the surface, and the average depth of the oceans is over two miles, and we're just scratching the surface at visiting there. And allowing research vessels to go out and use deep water robots, to use submersibles to go and explore the deep uh, is something that we need to do more of. And so for me, that was one of the huge leveraging uh, components that that we, we get out of using the FALCOR.
0: Uh, is, there, is there other equipment that you'll be bringing on that the Falkor didn't have at their uh, disposal?
3: Definitely. And so th- kind of the bread and butter from my lab group is that we use an in-situ electrochemical analyzer, mm-hmm. the IC, if you mm-hmm. will. And what that allows us to do is measure a whole suite of different chemistry in situ, and so rather than collecting a bottle of water and bringing it back to the deck and then analyzing in a lab, maybe six or eight or nine hours after it was collected and mm-hmm. at different pressure and different temperature, we can push a button on a laptop and run voltage through a little sensor in situ in real time and actually measure chemistry as we go. And then that so so is
0: that is that piece of equipment being submerged along with some other. Like, uh, uh, Jimbo, you were showing me some of these containers that would collect water. Oh, yeah, with the CCD, yeah. Yeah, would that be attached to that? Uh,
3: Absolutely. Device? We We build this electrochemical analyzer. We put it into a pressure case so it stays dry. And it has a little computer in it, and it gets tethered, wired into the submersible, and that goes through a you know twenty-five kilometer long fiber up to the ship, and we control that instrument as the ROV pilots control the ROV and fly around and take high image, emi- you know, high-resolution imaging. Mm.
0: Now, uh, you know, Jimbo, you were talking about the the terabytes of uh, data that you collect, and I saw some pretty sizable uh, transmitting devices uh, on the ship. Tell us a little bit about the capability of of transmitting you know, data and, and, and Internet access uh, through the transmission equipment that you have. Uh, right. So on we've got
4: two VSAT domes. And the reason there are two is to avoid shadowing. And um, at and the, the, the moment, it's a 256K link. Um, that link goes up when we do to do telepresence so we can stream live video from the ROV or indeed any other system on the ship. So we have, you know, the nice streaming of the multi-beam. Um, so it goes up to a few megabits. I think it's around 6 megabits it's, it tops out at.
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: Well, I definitely want to talk more about life aboard the Falkor, and uh, and I liked what you said, Brian, about this, we should call it Planet Ocean, and some of the mysteries that uh, that you'll be looking at, and specifically about your, your expedition coming up to a seamount off the Hawaiian Islands. But we will hold that thought, and we will uh, be back after this short break to continue our conversation with uh, – Jimbo, and Brian about the research festival Falkor.
0: And, of course, uh, we've got a couple of questions lined up, and we will be taking that right after we get back from our little break. Of course, we'd love to hear from you, and that number to call is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 This is Bite Marks Cafe. If you want to know more details about HPR's history and mission, or information on how to donate a car, rent the Atherton Studio, or just want to send an email to someone on the staff, you'll find it all at hawaiipublicradio.org. Go to the link called About HPR and check out the pull-down menu. It's all
3: there. The HPR website. It's just a click away.
1: This week on Applause in a Small Room, we'll be featuring one of Hawaii's legendary artists, John Cruz, recorded in HPR's intimate Atherton Studio. In this concert, John played some new songs, old favorites, and told a few stories as well. You can catch John Cruz receiving Applause in a Small Room this Sunday at 4 on HPR 2.
3: We do it, song for From the mountain to the ocean, from the what to the
1: Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Burt Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Jimbo Duncan and Brian Glazer about teaming with UH to explore the Pacific Ocean.
0: And, of course, I'm curious to find out how long will the Fowl Corps stay in the waters around Hawaii. And, of course, you can ask your questions as well by giving us a call here at nine four one. 3689 on Oahu or 877 941 3689 from the neighbor islands. You know, right before the break, we had a kind of a shy caller, then usually they, you know, sort of leave the questions for us to ask. And the question that came through was whether or not there are any experiments going on uh, with the Falcor to kind of help uh, uh, come up with some scientific uh, evidence of climate change. So, Jimbo, I mean, are there things going on that you can? Conclusively say that there is a climate change activity that that has been scientifically proven.
4: Well, where I used to work at the uh, the Oceanography Centre in Southampton, there's a uh, a project called the Rapid Climate Array. It's um, an array of current meters, uh, thermometers, uh, sal- and salinity ac- across across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. basically looking for changes in the chemistry and the speed. And direction of the Gulf Stream. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand, well, certainly when I last asked, they hadn't seen any significant change. So hopefully. Um that the, the, there, there may be climate change, but it's not affecting the Gulf Stream so far. Which well, which, is oh, a, I see. Oh. which is a big deal.
1: And there's certainly, I mean, that's certainly a running theme on our show in terms of all of the research. A lot of it from Hawaii about this this issue. Um, you talked about terabytes of data. You talked about live access to some of that and making it available. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious about uh, perhaps any long term data collection. I think that's where, for example, some of that information would come from.
4: Uh, you talk about time series data. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, at the moment the. Falco hasn't really concentrated on that. It's moved from one place to another. I mean, it started off in Germany, we went up to Norway, that was probably to training. Then we came down to the English Channel, did some helicopter training, up to the Tyne. Then from the Tyne, we towed a video plankton recorder across the Atlantic. Um, and on the way, we stopped in at Greenland, where we found uh, the wreck of the Terra Nova, and uh then we then we uh headed into Woods Hole and then went down the east coast of the US uh, ending up at um St. Petersburg in Florida then we did a bunch of cruises with the DSSI Global Explorer Mark 3 ROV in the Gulf of Mexico and uh ending up at Corpus Christi in Texas um
1: so time series uh, wouldn't be as useful if you're all over the map like that. No, we've, we've, and you probably we've,
4: haven't been around that
0: long either, right? No, so, we've, yeah. we've,
4: we've been doing this for uh, 18 months, two years now. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So Brian, your project is uh, headed out to the, the Sea Mount uh, or Loihi. Uh, that's a little volcano right off the uh, south, uh, south end of the Big Island. Uh, what do you guys have in mind to, uh, let's say, find out, experiment, discover uh,
3: as a result of your mission on uh, Falkor? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the seafloor is relatively unexplored. We've only looked at really less than 5% of the total deep ocean seafloor. Let that sink in for a minute. Mm -hmm, And what that really means is that what we've been doing is kind of analogous to flying over the mainland in a plane, dropping a bucket down off of a rope, scooping up a piece, looking at it and saying, based on a bucket of corn in Kansas, saying this is what the North American continent looks like. And instead, over the last 15, 20, 30 years, we've been able to visit there more frequently. And Louis he has this great time series, if you will, of being studied from seismic perspectives, from geologic perspectives, and comparing that with what's known about other seafloor hydrothermally active areas. And so, again, if we think about our planet, and there is this 70,000 kilometer long mid-ocean ridge volcanic system, where at any given moment, somewhere it's erupting. And then we also have other places that are seamounts, that are detached from that with a little bit of similar uh, geology, a little bit of similar chemistry, but also differences. Mm -hmm. We're very lucky here in Hawaii that just Thirty kilometers offshore from the Big Island, we have the newest Hawaiian island forming and growing toward the sea surface. So Luihi Seamount is, as I mentioned, just offshore from the southeast area of the Big Island. It's probably about four hundred thousand years old. In another ten thousand to hundred thousand years it'll break the surface as the newest Hawaiian island and the summit of Luihi is about 1,000 meters below the sea surface. And in this area of the Pacific, that just so happens to intersect an oxygen minimum zone, which is kind of a naturally occurring phenomenon of low oxygen. And being a hydrothermally active volcano at 1,000 meters at low oxygen, it's just a wonderland for iron-oxidizing iron microbes. So sometimes we have to make sacrifices and go into the basements of our buildings and scrape some rust off of a pipe and study iron, oxygen, microbial reactions that are occurring in water. Mm-hmm. And other times we get to really pamper ourselves and go out to sea on research vessels like the Falcor mm-hmm. and use really cool underwater robots to do that. And so that's what we'll be doing at Louis Oh, wow, that's cool. And you'll be out for about a month? Right. We have 31 days of ship time with the Falcor and with uh, HROV Nereus. And so I keep saying HROV, you know, what that means is a hybrid ROV. And so uh, I've used. Remote-operated vehicle Jason, too, which actually found the Titanic, is mm-hmm. probably most famous for that. And it's tethered to the to the ship via 7,000-kilometer fiber-optic cable and sending lots of voltage down the down the tether to the vehicle. What Nereus is capable of doing is severing that tether and going off in autonomous pre-program mode. And so we'll, we'll probably spend about two weeks mapping with Nereus as an autonomous underwater vehicle. It'll go out and maybe 15, 20 meters off the bottom, collect really, really high-resolution maps, of the, top- the topography mm-hmm. and tell us what's there. And it'll also have a few different signals for chemistry. It'll also be able to take bottom pictures. And based upon the results from those broad XY kinds of surveys, then we'll bring the nearest back up to shore and spend about two days in port converting it over into ROV mode. And with that, it has a very thin fiber optic tether that allows us to communicate to the vehicle in real time, mm-hmm. stream back video. Um, everybody probably heard of James Cameron's dive to the deep. Mm-hmm. We'll actually have James Cameron's cameras, his high resolution cameras and lighting system on Nereus for this cruise. So in July, we'll have maybe the best video that's ever been captured at He ever uh, using the Cameron systems. And so we'll explore some of these most interesting. Areas that are tantalizing, based on the mapping data that we get.
1: Now, Jimbo, uh, because of some of the technology you have on the core, I mean, one thing Brian said was it's like if you were flying over the United States and thought you were sampling it by just dropping a bucket. um, When you're sampling the seafloor, you're not just sort of dragging something up from the from the floor of the the ocean, and it's actually important to kind of capture the state of uh, sediments or 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 the water and the pressure and the chemicals at that depth and be able to study it. in that state, um, what are some of the, what's the tool that you're using to be able to kind of preserve that sample?
4: Oh, you're talking about the IGTs now. Yes. Yeah, okay. so IGT. Tell, tell us what this IGT is. So says. that is isobaric gas-tight sampler. Oh, okay. And yeah. um, Brian's probably going to be using these to sample the hot, uh, mineral-rich water coming out of the uh, hydrothermal vents. Um, so the idea is that the, there's gas trapped in, in – in, dissolved in the water – and that uh, if you bring it up at the pressure that it that it is down down in uh, in the deep then the gas will not escape from the water and you you get to to preserve it as it is
3: absolutely you know maybe if you remember back to high school PIVNERT, right pv equals nrt mm. and so changes happen when you change pressure temperature And especially for volcanic fluids, hydrothermal fluids, they're rich in gases, dissolved gases, and other chemistry that changes between the time when you actually collect a sample or measure it later in the lab. And so what we do is try to do a nice blend between sensing in situ using uh, some cutting-edge electrochemical techniques to tell us what exactly the fluids look like while they're venting from the, fl- from the rock, and also then use those real-time measurements to collect so many discrete samples because you don't have an unlimited um, number, say, of IGTs. Now,
0: Brian, uh, your project is uh, going to take off in about the July timeframe. Uh, so between now and July, are there other projects that will be
3: uh, leveraging the, you know, the core Absolutely. And so Chris Kelly uh, has a long time with you guys, right?
4: 72 days of mapping. The um, Papaharao
3: you, Thank you. The, the <laughs>
4: Northwest North <laughs> Marine Island. Monument, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to be doing uh, lots and lots of multi-beam um, so there's not an awful lot of it that's been um, been mapped so far. What's my to date? Uh, gosh, there needs to be 190,000 square kilometers of the monument to be mapped.
0: 190,000? Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty that, big that's area. That's
4: a lot, yeah. Now... We we should be able to to make a fair old dent in that. If you look on the um, <laughs> on the SOI website and look at what we did at Campeche Escarpment, mm-hmm. it, there's, a, there's a there's a map of the Gulf of Mexico with a large amount of it that we mapped. Uh, so we should be able to make a, a, a fair old dent in that. There've been four dedicated mapping cruises uh, in that area, uh, one of which was done by the Kilamoana and um, and we and we're doing two. So hopefully we'll make a, a serious dent in that. I mean. The, ma- the mapping is really important because, I mean, if, if you want to know what's down there, the really cool thing to do is send down an ROV. But without good maps of the seabed, it's like driving around in a town that you've never been to before in fog with the lights off. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, the, the mapping really is important. Now, so you have that uh, long-term mapping project. You have Brian's project. Um, how long will uh, the Falkor be in Hawaii? And uh, are there any other specific projects uh, you're um, looking forward to?
4: There, I believe we're taking out some students from the University of Hawaii just to give them some experience of, of being on a research ship, but I don't think there's any other major project. I may mm. be wrong on that, but th- that's that's what I think. I think we're going to be leaving around September next year, maybe October. Mm-hmm. Fantastic.
0: Now, I'm curious, when you are mapping uh, this, this 190. Thousand square kilometers.
4: Well, some of it. I don't think we'll get
1: all the bit
0: done. Oh, Typically, yeah, typically. How would uh, the the Falkor sort of traverse that? I mean, uh, you're just taking sort of one path and, and and going down one side of this rectangle and down the you know down the next side. I mean, how do you how do you, you have to yeah, course yeah. this out?
4: Hopefully, we have some idea of roughly what kind of depth we're expe- we're expecting, and um, we need to have some idea of that so we know which sonar to use. The EM-710, maximum depth between 1,000 and 1,500 meters. Um, if you want feet, just multiply that by about three. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other sonar is the EM, EM-302, and uh, that you know, can go down maximum around 8,000 meters. So you have to know roughly what you want to do. Then, you, then you'll plan the survey. Again, the, the coverage of those, the, the width of those um, sonars depends, again, on the depth it's roughly three and a bit times the depth. And it Mm -hmm. depends on things like the terrain. You might get masking if there are peaks down there and things like that. So it's it, there's there's a lot of things to that to
1: consider when you're planning a survey of this kind. Mm-hmm. Now Brian um, when you have access to this uh, Narius and you're you're exploring down there you talked a little bit about the ox, the the specific life forms that are like rust here uh, on land that you're looking at around there. I'm kind of, I'm also curious kind of about the biology uh, of that seamount or is that effectively the extent of the kind of quote-unquote life that you're able to observe, uh, at least at this point, at this age, geologically for the sea mount.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating. Louise is this really captivating place. It's, a, you know, the pit caldera. It's a volcano. Mm-hmm. If you've been to Volcanoes National Park, it looks like that, but it's at a 1,000 meters deep, and it's rusty because you have microbes rusting the rock. They're eating the rock, right? The rock is alive kind of to sensationalize it, really. And at 1,000 meters, because of the low oxygen, there aren't a lot of other animals. Mm-hmm. We have some crabs. We have some shrimp. We have the occasional fish fly by. Now, that's at 1,000 meters at the summit of the volcano. Now, to 5,000 meters water depth at the very base where the hot spot may be, you know, the, the island has is migrated past the hot spot perhaps, another 30 kilometers out farther, we're starting to see from just a little bit of exploration indications of temperature and indications of microbial activity that's real similar to what we see at that summit. So, four thousand vertical meters separated and thirty kilometers away, you have similar processes that are occurring biogeochemistry effectively mm-hmm. and When we think about the age of the planet and different points in earth 's evolution and coevolution between geochemistry and microbiology, the some of the processes that we 're studying at Luigi using Luigi as this model system definitely also occurred in in Earth's past, billions of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it's old processes. It allows us some insight to think about, not just today, how Louie He works, and how the planet works in terms of biogeochemical cycling, of iron, of carbon, of oxygen, Mm. between the ocean and these hydrothermal systems, but also thinking about the planet's coevolution
1: Mm-hmm. And yes. I definitely look forward to, like, IMAX quality images of it uh, and getting a getting a look at that. Are, now, we, are we supposed to be doing um, telepresence for you
4: guys? We
3: will. And, yeah, one of the, you know, again, for me, it's been this kind of great marriage between technological advancements enabled from the FALCOR and being able to stream off both video for educational outreach uh, activities. We're going to try to tie school groups in. Um, we're going to stream back to you know mainland uh, institutions, educational outreach-type activities. And we're also going to send off lots of real-time mapping data to mm-hmm. actually high, have high-quick turnover for that kind of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. We're going to have a huge educational outreach component to that. Now, you said that the James Cameron's sort of uh, cameras are going to be on board. Is is uh
0: is James Cameron's, you know, he did the Deep Sea Challenge. Uh, is that Deep Sea Challenge in any way a part of, uh, you know, your... No, project?
3: so he he did a great thing in that he knew that he didn't have the capacity. He had to go back to Hollywood and write, you know, two new <laughs> films or something to, to, for his day job. Yeah. And so he donated the vehicle to the Woods Hole Oceanographic ah, Institute. And so they're also doing the the really smart thing and not trying to turn it around and get somebody out diving it right away, but rather use the cutting-edge technology that he developed in using that vehicle and then plug it into other assets that the U.S. has available in the National Deep Submergence Facility Mm -hmm. and in Nereus. And so we're taking kind of the the low-hanging fruit for our our crews and taking the cameras and taking the lighting from Deep Sea Challenger and putting those on Nereus for our Mm -hmm.
1: crews. Now, Jimbo, um, we've only got a minute or so left, but I was kind of curious about life aboard the Falkor. You said you're here through August, and I would imagine, I mean, Bert got to visit, and he described it like being mm-hmm. on a cruise ship. I would imagine there's not like, uh, you know, bingo night or anything specifically. But are you, uh, has life not, you know, is life pretty good living on the Falkor in Hawaii? Yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, the, the, we've we got two restaurant-quality uh, chefs on board, Greg and uh, Eric. Uh, they're from Poland. And, I mean, it's a truly n- international crew, actually. So we've got, we've got German officers, um, Filipino engineers, uh, English en- engineers, um, a Colombian purser. Um, yeah, it's, it's truly an international crew, and it's, it's a great bunch of people. They're really, really, really friendly, and uh, the food's great. Uh, you've got people to look after your laundry. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's you know,
0: just imagine, you know, so Eric Schmidt spent some money to build a, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's probably on the same level of maybe Larry Ellison, you know, sort of, sort of a yacht. The yacht oh, might be a little call bit it nicer. A yacht. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, when you're at sea, when Brian's aboard with his crew plus mm-hmm. your crew, how many people are living in this? Uh, About forty this people. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, the the lounge was uh, was quite nice, and I'm sure the the food was great. So, um. where can we find out more, Brian? I, I mean, you, you've got some great. Uh, uh, video that I know will come out of your your uh, experiment there. Where can we find out more about that?
3: Yeah, so through the University of Hawaii, uh, SOEST, our mm-hmm. school, or the Department of Oceanography, or just Google me. You can kind of Brian Grazer, the producer, and Brian Glazer come up number one or two, depending on <laughs> what month it is. But uh, yeah, just drop me an email if you're interested Sounds in, in kind of being a part of that EPO stuff. Yeah, and Jimbo, um, for the for the fall core itself, work yeah, yeah, it's Take a look at
4: the, uh, the Schmidt Ocean website. Uh, wwwschmidt and uh, you'll you can go to past cruises and look at the pictures and some video snips. Um, it's great, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's even a street view version, so yeah, right well, you I'll can post move.
4: that up. You can do a tour of the ship, virtual tour, street view, whatever you want. Yeah.
0: Well, Jimbo Duncan is a marine technician on the Falkor, and Brian Glazer is an associate professor in the Department of Oceanography over at the University of Hawaii. We want to thank you both
1: for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll catch up with a couple of startups graduating from the second Blue Startups cohort. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show
0: on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on
1: Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called
0: Best Coast and a song called I Want to Know. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.